Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. Speaking of Constitution, I, I don't know what the Constitution of the, uh, of the planet is at the moment, but my next guest has some thoughts on that. She's uh, also written a collection of, of short stories and currently has the cover article in Mother Jones magazine on what's going to happen with the vast diminishment of species in the planet in the next 93 years. She has a remarkable account of diving and other adventures in the South Pacific, and in particular around a coral atoll, which takes a look at the fragile edge, as the name of the book says, about the coral reefs. Will you please welcome oceanographer and writer and filmmaker Julia Witte to West Coast. Well, I'm glad you've come up for air. Thank you, yeah. yeah. It's good to breathe up here for once in a while. I was very interested to read in, in your book the sort of the exuberance, the giggliness, the merry bubbles of having narcosis of the deep. Yeah, that's what brings a lot of divers back is a little martini buzz down there when you go deep enough. Yeah. So are, are, have you had that sensation yourself a lot? Oh, yeah. Anytime you go below, below 100 feet, you start picking up some of that. And so how do you remind yourself to practice good judgment? Well, it's just like drinking. <laughs> you do keep reminding yourself, you know. You keep checking your gauges and make sure there's no cops on your tail and yeah, same kind of stuff. No sharks lurking around. Yeah, they're the they're the cops of the deep. Yeah. So, uh, and and do people actually sometimes take the regulators out of their mouth and offer little sips of oxygen to passing fish? Well, that is the joke in the diving vernacular that if you get really narked, as it's called, that you you know you start trying to pass your regulator to a, to the pa- to the passing fish, and so you know you're a little too deep. Tell us about this uh, uh, this atoll. Uh, how how would you get there from San Francisco? Take us. You you describe the sort of the brutal airline trip that it is, uh, and and the expense of it. So say you leave your your home in Northern California. Take us take us there. How do we get there? Well, <clears throat> you would fly to Papayete, which is the capital of Tahiti, or French Polynesia. And, and once there, you could hang out in that little teeny airport until dawn, because you in- invariably arrive at 2 AM, and wait for your morning flight out to the outer islands, the Tuamotu Archipelago, to this particular island I talk about called Rangiroa. And um, once there, there's nothing there. There's You just get off, you head to the one or handful of hotels on the thing and you set up for your dives. How big is this atoll? How, how wide is it? Can you walk across the land in a minute or two? Well, the atoll is actually uh, the second largest atoll on Earth. It's, a, it's essentially a necklace of little low sandy islands about 12 feet above sea level. And in, inside this necklace is a, is a lagoon. Once there was a high island like the Hawaiian Islands that stood there, but the volcanoes went extinct. And now they eventually subsided, and all that's left now is the lagoon and the ocean and a coral reef that holds it all together. And one of the appeals for this for divers is the is the rich marine life and the and the coral and the coral reefs. There are these uh, passes, which you call passes. Could you describe one of these passes? Well, one of the things that makes Rangiroa unique is uh, it only has two navigable passes in this very large circlet of islands. And so the water pressures that build up with the tidal changes as, as water tries to come into the lagoon or out of the lagoon is huge. And it sets up actually standing waves in these passes up to 15 feet high. So it's really adventurous, extreme diving with lots of currents and, and lots of animals that come and hang out there. 
And people sometimes get lost diving here? Well, it is dangerous and you can't dive directly in the current when it's switching up and you've got uh, standing waves. You dive the edges of it and you have to be fairly artful about that. People do die under those circumstances. There's a lot of strong, in essence, downdrafts that can drag you to the bottom. So you have to be very careful diving those situations. You were describing not only the, the sort of the, the beauty and the magnificence of the sharks that, that live there and how old they are, but also how old the mountains were, that, that the, there was not only a 10,000 foot, say, underwater mountain, but another mountain 12,000 feet on top of that. That's what these atolls were. And then they were gradually eroded away over time? Yeah, when the volcano goes extinct and there's no more lava flows feeding it, then it, it does. It wears down under the efforts of rain and wind. And eventually, it, it, the weight of those massive volcanoes actually cracks the the Earth's crust and it eventually sinks down below the crust. And all that's left is the ring of coral that once grew on the flanks that uh, that outlines the actual it's the original outline of the island, and, and the little coral, or the sand islands, grow on top of that. And the, the coral reefs themselves on our planet represent, what, a very small percentage of the Earth's surface, yet they have a profound effect on the entire biodiversity of the planet. They really are, and you know, some people call them the rainforests of the sea, and they're at least as important to the overall planet as rainforests. They're wellsprings of biodiversity, like the rainforest. They seed the larger ocean, so even if we live far from it, chances are the fish we're eating are feeding on the larval forms of coral reef animals, at least in some, some way up the food web. They are extremely important. They're also very important mitigators of our atmosphere. And yet, they also have an appeal not only for people looking for isolation, for you know, place to enjoy the sun, the quiet, the bucolic world, to go fishing, to go diving, but for instance, they were of great attractiveness to the Americans and the French as places for atomic bomb testing. Yeah, ironically, <clears throat> these extremely beautiful islands were used by both the, the Americans and the French. The French up through... Not, not the atoll that you were speaking of in particular, but a couple of other atolls, right? Yes, right. A, a sister atoll to the Rangiroa, one of the same Tuamotu atolls, was used by the French through the 1990s for their nuclear testing. The place is now completely off limits, and it's very radioactive, and it's more than likely leaking into the larger oceans, so it's a bad scene. And the French... Uh, according to your account, seem not to care what the world thought about doing this. That, uh, and they would lose bombs that would sort of explode at bizarre altitudes and depths and sink islands, much to their dismay. Yeah, they were pretty careless about it. I mean, the whole operation, you might argue, is careless from the get-go, but um, they were particularly careless with it. And there were a lot of strange sort of Three Stooges-like accidents that went on around their testing. And um, That's a great description, Three Stooges. <laughs> so it, and it, you know, and it, sadly, the local people are still suffering, and people far, even farther afield in the South Pacific are still suffering from the effects of the radiation, the fallout, and the botched testing that they did. The, uh, there are a lot of sharks. You describe the, the sort of but the, the fishing havoc that uh, aficionados of shark fin soup want. You know, and did you see signs of this when you were there? Yes, yeah, sadly, Rangiroa Atoll, which is well known for its sharks, in fact, thousands of sharks gather in these two passes during the daytime hours to sleep. Believe it or not, they actually shoal like minnows in these passes during the daytime to sleep, and they're they're trying to save themselves from larger predators like great hammerhead sharks and tiger sharks. And, and now there's a movement to come in and start a, a shark fishery there for shark fin soup. And it, you know, in other atolls where these fisheries have come in, you literally can wipe out the shark population in a matter of a couple of months. 
So it's, it would be a terrible thing to lose. As I say, it's the main form of sustenance for a lot of the people there is the tourism that comes along to dive with those sharks, not to mention supporting the entire ecosystem. Uh, we humans are remarkably efficient species at some things. Yeah, we're overly efficient. You know, our fishing, our commercial industrialized fisheries are so efficient that they become super inefficient. We just really wipe out everything. And we know now from scientific studies that when you take out those top end predators like sharks, you actually lose biodiversity all the way down the scale. You know, we need competitors and predators to keep biodiversity alive. And we really can't afford to lose it or everything suffers, eventually ratcheting its way all the way up to us. When did you first go underwater? Um, I f well, I started diving in 1980, and um, before that I'd done a lot of free diving, and I was pretty comfortable with being in the water and free diving when I started scuba diving. You've, uh, part of your work has been as a, as a filmmaker, and, and as I was reading the book and, and getting a very clear sense of what life was like underwater there, I thought how different it is to try to articulate in words what often you've, you've done in film, and I wonder as a, as a creative person how you made that transition. Well, sometimes it was frustrating. It'd be like, God, if I could just show them a few frames of footage, you know, I wouldn't have to describe all this. But on the other hand, what I get to do with writing is I get to talk about the stuff that we never got on film, you know, and some of the best stuff, you're pointing the wrong way, your camera's empty, it's out of focus, you've, you've set the exposure wrong, and you never come up with anything in the can. And now, but everything's in the can of your memory. So, you know, I have this giant stock footage library of experiences, and I was able to actually write about those, and it was very gratifying. So how do you access that? Um, I look at footage, actually. I kind of I jog my memory of events, and uh, I have journals that I've kept over the years. And so a lot of stuff like that I use to sort of refresh my memory. Is there a place in the world that you'd like to go diving that you haven't been yet? Yeah, I've never been to the Red Sea, which I would like to see. Um, and um, I would definitely want to spend some time in and around like Papua New Guinea and um, some parts of Indonesia that are the real epicenter of coral reef biodiversity. The, uh, the cover article that's in Mother Jones magazine tries to assess what our planet will be like in 93 years by the year 2100. I mean, is it, uh, uh, would you describe yourself as, a, as an optimist, a realist, a, uh, uh, someone who takes a look, a longer look at, uh, I don't know, the connections with a sort of a spiritual viewpoint? I mean, you, you mentioned Krishna a lot in your book and, and various Buddhist ideals. Uh, to represent balance and so forth. I mean, where is the sort of the scientific knowledge and dismay that you express fit in that worldview of yours? Well, I think, you know, if you use some of the Buddhist concepts of impermanence, you can sort of deal with the tragedies that are underway. You can use them, hopefully, to, to get a, a broader, you know, point of view on the whole thing. Um, I do try to look at the long view and I try to remain optimistic because if you become pessimistic then you for sure aren't going to do anything and then we really are doomed to fail on all these fronts. So in my opinion we, we do actually have to maintain some form of optimism and belief that human beings for all the crummy things we do we are capable of incredible good and we can do amazing change when we set our minds to it and it's sort of awaiting that critical mass when we set our minds to it and you know I've been talking about this stuff for 25 or more years and I actually see lately a little bit of change so if anything I'm ever so slightly heartened. Is there a, a what is the Darwin point? 
the Darwin point is the point beyond which corals can grow. And so basically it's the water gets too cold. Corals can only grow within a very small temperature range and within even like two degrees Fahrenheit above or below that, they will not grow. So beyond the Darwin point, you no longer get coral atolls because there's no corals to make the atoll. And once the volcan volcanic island goes extinct, it simply subsides beneath the waves and there's nothing left of it. Is there any likelihood that uh, with global warming and if oceans warm that the Darwin point will expand? Yes, there's probably some evidence already that it's starting to shift a little bit northward. Whether corals can keep up with it, are there islands for them to hop to and stick on to? I mean, they need a substrate to stick to. They can't just grow in the middle of the ocean. So um, it's not clear really how that's going to affect it. But yes, all throughout the ocean, we're absolutely seeing shifting at, to the higher latitudes away from the, the equi equatorial regions. The, uh, the ocean, the water is described as living, filled with millions of, of species. Uh, Human beings are responsible for the extinction of, of many species. Is there just a sort of a normal speciation extinction that, that goes on in nature, regardless of, of uh, uh, there must be it's at some level as part of evolutionary behavior? There is what scientists call the background extinction rate, which is just a, a very slow, very tiny rate that's sort of sustainably replaced by new, new species coming up. We're currently in the middle of what scientists call a sixth great extinction. We know there have been five prior to this, where up to 95% of the life of the times have died, including the dominant life forms. The sixth great extinction is completely at our hands. It's happened in the last 40 to 50,000 years since we migrated out of Africa, and it's currently really accelerating. I mean, it's become metastatic at the current rate. And a recent poll found that seven of 10 biologists find that the extinction crisis underway is a bigger threat to life on Earth than global warming, which is one of the contributors to the sixth great extinction. Do you think that uh, global warming then is masking what's going on? Is it, that all of our attention being focused on global warming is masking this other issue? Somehow, you know, global warming has kind of caught on, but the effects of global warming are, of course, what are they going to be? They're going to be the extinction of species. And what, what biologists understand is the only reason our Earth is inhabitable to us is because there are living things making an inhabitable Earth, making an atmosphere that you and I can breathe and so on. If we lose that fragile membrane, it is just as thin as can be, and it's the only thing supporting life, and it is made up of life. If we lose that, there will be no life on this earth. Jury thought. Uh, what's in your diving closet? <laughs> A lot of old gear. I have interestingly archaic gear by modern standards. And, um, you know, I have beat up stuff and like old technology, and I'm really kind of in the dark ages on it. But, um, it all works. It's always worked for me, and I, I have a, a somewhat more hands-on approach to diving than I think some modern divers have. What do, what do you mean a hands-on approach? You know, you kind of get to know how long you can stay under and what you can do, and your gauges aren't as quite important to you as they might be to novice divers and things like that. It's like in, in photography, you can gauge your own f-stop without having to use a light meter? That's a very good analogy, yeah. What, uh, are there, have there been changes in materials and diving equipment from, you know, do you still use heavy steel tanks or are they now carbon fiber? Or? Yeah, there's a lot of aluminum, I think, in the tanks and um, things have changed. I mean, I still have an old metal regulators and I notice now that almost all of them are plastic. They're all made of plastic. So I take mine in to get mine serviced and people, it's like a museum. And they're like, hey, take a look at this one. You know, they bring the youngsters in, the new technicians. They've never even seen this stuff before. 
Does anyone ever do Darth Vader impersonations with their regulators? <laughs> yeah, just breathing down there is a Darth Vader experience. Yeah. What kind of uh, helmets do you do? You wear different kind of uh, headgear when you when you go down. Is it is it a face mask? You go deep enough that you have to have some kind of a helmet? No, I don't wear any helmets. Um, I have worn complete head things where, where you can talk to people, and it's really odd because in underwater, you know, you just don't talk, and when you finally get the opportunity to talk, there's absolutely nothing to say. And so people are just saying to each other, hey, how you doing? You know, and nobody, there's nothing to say, and you're, you've got this silly giant contraption on your head, and you have nothing to say. Part of that uh, may also be sort of the overwhelmingness of the experience. You describe the, the sensation of, of diving and that you can't hear very well. The stereophonic hearing doesn't work. You can't speak. Vision is kind of murky. You move around in kind of an odd way. There are all these slim uh, uh, hydrodynamic shapes zipping all around you. Uh, you feel kind of clunky even though you're, you're, you're lightweight. And, but the thoughts, you, you talk about what is it? It's, it's a, you go to almost a pre-verbal state. Yeah, you do. I think you do. I think your brain actually begins to calculate differently because you're not talking and you're not processing with words. And there's this interesting disconnect. It's very difficult to remember what you are experiencing underwater when you come topside. It's really bizarre. And I think it's partly because you're using this sort of pre-verbal brain part. And there's a hard way to hold on to it with words because you're not actually making words. So it's always been a real challenge. And I always take a little dive slate underwater with me. And uh, I make very bizarre notes that I can't figure out what they mean when I come topside. Maybe I'm narked. Maybe you're narked. <laughs> you, you, the book opens with a, with a scene of uh, a peace sign reproduction. And all you come up with at the end, and when you look at your slate, is an exclamation point on your slate. Yeah, yeah, a beautiful scene of spawning fish at dusk and at the outflow from one of these passes and huge currents setting up, and they come up and meeting in the hundreds and spawning together. And, and I get back to my little bungalow, and I think, well, I'll just write this up, and I look at my dive slate, and it's an exclamation mark, and that's it. You would, there's, a, there's a point where you're talking about the radioactive atolls, that, that there's an attraction to, the, uh, to some divers who are ultra-macho. Um, what, what is sort of the macho scale in the diving world? The sports diving world, which I ha actually have had very little to do with, um, but what I have had to do with it, I see is very macho. It's, it's exceedingly macho. Um, I've always been basically a professional diver, and there isn't a whole lot of macho going on there. Um, and so there is this sort of attraction to extreme, what, what sports divers maybe think of as extreme diving, um, and it, it does seem to play a part in it. You remember that Australian fellow who got the the ray spine tail on his chest in his heart. Yeah, Steve Irwin. Did you know Steve? I never met Steve, no. I'd been to his zoo there in Queensland, but I, I never actually had met him. He was at one of those let's wrestle the animals guys, you know. I have certain qualms with wrestling wild animals. I don't think they really like it, and, um, <laughs> and they're not aware that they're on television, you know, so they don't, they don't really see the benefit behind it. Julia Witte, the book is called The Fragile Edge, Diving and Other Adventures in the South Pacific, published by Houghton Mifflin. And thank you very much for diving and writing about it. Thank you, Sedge. Julia Witte. Thank you. This is Sedge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. 
For more information, wcl.org.